0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, a heart surgeon discusses the nation's number one killer, coronary artery disease.
1: You know, age, uh, genetics, in terms of your family history, are very important, and what whether you have some of these other pre-existing risk factors.
0: Then we'll talk about HIV and a medication that can reduce the risk of transmission.
2: Right now, the medication that is available and and approved by the FDA for prep is called
0: Truvada. And an ear, nose, and throat specialist will explain how surgery, radiation, and or chemotherapy treat a variety of head and neck cancers.
3: At Upstate, our uh, cancer specialists meet on a weekly basis, and we'll discuss each of the new cancer diagnoses, uh, each patient individually, and try to give what is Upstate's recommendation for how to proceed.
0: All that, plus a visit from our healing news, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, an exploration of health, medicine, and science from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about reducing the risk of HIV with an infectious disease expert. Then we'll explore diagnosis and treatment of head and neck cancers with an ear, nose, and throat doctor. But first, we'll hear from a heart surgeon about coronary artery disease, the most common type of heart disease. Coronary artery disease is the most common type of heart disease and the leading cause of death in the United States for men and women. Here to discuss diagnosis and treatment options is Dr. Barry Esrig. Uh, he is a heart surgeon and an assistant professor at Upstate Medical University who is the interim chief of cardiac surgery. Welcome, Dr. Estrig.
1: Good to be here. Thank
0: you for being here. So how does a person typically learn that they have coronary artery disease?
1: Well, there are several ways they can learn. The worst way to learn is if they have a heart attack or they have chest pain that's unremitting and you know, they suddenly wind up in an emergency room and they, uh, they're told they have a heart problem. But there are some uh, some pre-existing uh, conditions that one has that you know sets you up for it. For instance, uh, if you have uh, you know longstanding hypertension, if you have diabetes, if you have peripheral vascular disease, then you know you are at a higher risk of having heart disease. And screening tests can be done at at those particular uh, uh, intervals uh, where. They'll get uh, routine electrocardiograms. They can get stress tests. They can get nuclear stress tests. They can get echocardiograms. So depending upon your risk factors, you know, it would be great to uh, to have a screening program set up with your physician, so that if there is any problem, you can get to it early and uh, get it diagnosed before it becomes a problem.
0: So if you get regular um, medical care, hopefully this might be learned about at a checkup or something. Uh, or
1: nothing beats red. Uh, nothing beats regular medical checkups with a physician who knows you and knows your history knows uh, your family history uh, knows whatever uh, pre-existing problems you have and can set up a screening program as is necessary not everyone needs to be screened obviously and uh, okay. you know age uh, genetics in terms of your family history are very important and what whether you have some of these other pre-existing risk factors
0: and even so, someone who doesn't have um, high blood pressure or diabetes, someone who doesn't have these risk factors could still fall victim to coronary artery disease with a heart attack that comes on with, without warning. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, so. we see that on a regular basis where people who have had no previous history suddenly come in with unremitting chest pain and they either have what's called an acute coronary syndrome where they, uh, the heart is not getting as much blood as it needs and they're developing chest pain but they've not had a heart attack or actually come in with a heart attack.
0: Okay. So what, what is happening? What is causing coronary artery disease? What's going on in the coronary arteries? Well,
1: basically, uh, if you think of, of a supply and demand situation, you have the heart, which needs a certain amount of blood and oxygen, uh, and so that's the, the demand, and you have the supply, which is provided through the arteries of the heart. If you have a mismatch where the supply cannot keep up with the demand, then you can get things like angina, which is basically chest pain. And if you have a sudden blockage where all of the uh, blood is cut off to a certain area of the heart, then you can develop a heart attack. So it's really a problem of decreased supply that is unable to meet the demands. There are other there are other times you can have this chest pain without having coronary artery disease, that oftentimes involves uh, diseases, let's say, of the aortic valve, where the heart grows just like if you were uh, weightlifting and your muscles get you know big and strong, uh, where you can literally outstrip the uh, the demand of the normal uh, outstrip the supply of the normal coronary artery uh, and. Then one has to look at at what the underlying issue is when you don't have coronary artery disease. Is it related to something on this order?
0: You know, we hear about um, in Syracuse during the winter when people, um, when there's a big snowstorm and there's the caution goes out to, you know, not go out and shovel and lift that heavy snow. Um, And I guess you see this too when people are exercising, maybe they may be prone to a heart attack. So the heart would be exceeding or increasing the demand, and the blood vessels would not be able to keep up.
1: Or you get what's called spasm, where the vessels will normally narrow down. So you have a combination of both.
0: Okay. Well, either way, so so what is done um, when someone arrives in the emergency department? And I'm sure time is of the essence, but what is done for someone who's suffered a coronary artery disease or a heart attack
4: well
1: the first thing is to make the diagnosis so one obviously gets a uh, a good history and gets a high index of suspicion uh, does a physical examination sees exactly what's going on with the patient including their vital signs their blood pressure their heart rate uh, and uh, the general feeling whether they are nauseated whether they've had any uh, any vomiting whether they are uh, sweating profusely, which are, you know, pretty classic signs. Then they would get uh, a chest x-ray just to make sure that there's nothing else going on. But more importantly, they would get an electrocardiogram. And they would also draw a series of blood tests to see if there's any uh, indication that the heart is not getting the blood supply it needs. So one would look predominantly at the uh, electrocardiogram. They would see some changes that would indicate that the heart is not getting its blood supply, either it's uh, what's called ischemic, which is not having a heart attack, but definitely not getting the blood supply, or whether it's actually undergoing damage with sudden stoppage of blood supply to a particular area. And One can generally get a good idea based upon the electrocardiogram of which of the two there are. The blood test would then be confirmatory to see if there's a large rise in one of the uh, blood test values or whether there's a small rise or no rise at all. Uh, these come in variable, uh, different diagnoses, if you will. Uh, one's called an acute coronary syndrome, as I mentioned, where they could have what's called a non-ST segment. That's an electrocardiogram, uh, non-ST the ST segment of the elevate, segment. right? Okay. Uh, ele- uh, Non-ST segment myocardial infarction, meaning there's no real change in the electrocardiogram, but the laboratory tests indicate that there has been some event which has caused, usually limited uh damage to the heart versus having big changes on the electrocardiogram and big changes in the blood tests, which would indicate you're probably having a heart attack.
0: Okay, uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on air talking about coronary artery disease with Upstate's Dr. Barry Esrig. Um, so once you know that a person does have uh, a blockage or coronary artery disease, what 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 happens next? What's the treatment? Well it
1: depends upon whether they're having a, a heart attack or whether they're just having what's called the acute coronary syndrome okay the uh, The worst scenario obviously is if you're having an acute heart attack and over the uh, over the years, the treatment of that has become much more advanced uh, with what's called percutaneous interventions done in the catheterization laboratory, the primary treatment for an acute event like a heart attack is to go to the catheterization laboratory, get an angiogram, find out the artery that has been acutely affected, and then open it up. Okay, so let me um, back you up just a
0: minute. So percutaneous means that you Go in through a vessel rather than Correct. cutting Th- a person open. Correct through the skin. Okay. Through the skin.
1: Uh, they uh, they put a tube uh, into the blood vessels. They under uh, fluoroscopic control. They, so they can
4: see. They like an- they pass
1: it up to uh, the the uh, heart where they can inject directly into the arteries that supply blood to the heart and get a picture of it and then uh, can tell where the blockage may be.
0: Blockage or blockages. or blockages. There may be more than right.
1: one. Okay. Usually, when you're dealing with an acute uh, episode like this, there's one particular artery, artery which we call the culprit vessel, and by opening that up, uh, usually, uh, and there are guidelines for this, which says that uh, to really be effective, that should be opened up within ninety minutes. So we have something called door-to-balloon time, which means that from the time you come in to the time you get to the catheterization laboratory and open up the artery, uh, the best time frame to accomplish the maximum benefit was in the, within those 90 within minutes. Within 90
0: minutes. Okay. All right. Well, um, are there times, though, that uh, surgery, traditional, like, open-heart surgery is needed, or is that not done as much?
1: Well... Open heart surgery uh, which I'm assume you're referring to coronary artery bypass it's still done quite a bit and it's still one of the uh, largest operations largest number of operations done in the country um, but how we do those operations has really changed uh, we used to do them for people like this who would have an acute event like Mm -hmm. a heart attack, but we found that actually uh, the results with opening them up in the catheterization laboratory is actually much better in the the acute setting. Now if you have this type of event and you have multiple arteries that are narrowed, or blocked, then after the acute event is over, one can then go ahead and go into surgery to correct the other arteries as well depend again depends upon the arteries that are blocked in the combinations most of the time uh, we're doing coronary artery bypass in patients who have acute coronary syndrome or have chronic uh, coronary artery disease chronic angina so you want to
0: prevent them having a heart attack
1: wait right where you know exactly what's going on uh, you know exactly what you need to do and we can then bypass those arteries that are either blocked or narrowed, and it's a non-emergent situation. The results from this immediate intervention in the catheterization laboratory has been much, much better than taking people emergently to the operating room, which is why the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology have all agreed that that is the primary treatment for the acute event. But what's also important is to know that we've also changed how we, uh, how we do coronary artery bypass now in terms of what we're using to bypass those vessels. Uh, so coronary, what, did,
0: what did you do first and what are you doing now? What are the changes?
1: Well, the first thing is that uh, we have to understand the history. Uh, coronary artery bypass in its modern form did not come about until 1968 in the Cleveland Clinic with Don Effler. And at that time, they were using just vein from the leg. Uh,
0: So they would take vein from the leg and transplant it into the coronary artery to create a bypass?
1: they would put one end onto the aorta, which is the large artery coming out of the heart, and the other end would go into the artery of the heart beyond the blockage. Okay. Uh, George Green was uh, using an artery behind the breastbone called the internal mammary artery, and over a period of time, it became clear that that was an exceptionally good artery to use so that people would get an arterial bypass, usually to the artery that runs down the front of the heart, called the anterior descending, and vein bypasses to the other arteries. Okay. Uh, now we have come to realize that the more arterial bypasses one can do, the better off they are long term. So now we're actually using uh, multiple arteries and we use, there are two internal mammary arteries, one on the left and one on the right, and we're now using them to bypass multiple arteries of the heart. So it's not unusual to have two arterial bypasses going to three vessels and maybe the fourth vessel might need a vein. So uh, that's pretty much where we've come. And we've also developed techniques, which we call hybrid revascularization, where we will do uh, a small incision and use the artery behind the breastbone, the mammary artery, to the artery on the front, the anterior descending. And then because we know that, particularly on the right, uh, a stent works almost as well as a vein, then go ahead and stent the artery on the right.
0: Oh, while you're doing the... Right, at the okay. same
1: sitting or in se- or in sequence. That's yeah. called a hybrid revascularization. Mm-hmm. So we've developed multiple techniques based upon the patient and what the patient needs.
0: Can you always use the patient's, or do you always have to use the patient's arter- own arteries and veins, or does it ever work that the patient, their veins or, or arteries are not usable?
1: We tried many different types of material in the past. None of them worked Nearly as well, and oftentimes fail very, very early, mm-hmm. unless they're the patient's own material. Okay. So we we tried that; didn't work
0: very well. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, thank you for um, telling us about this. Appreciate it. This has been Upstate's Health Link on air with Dr. Barry Astrig, an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate Medical University. Next up, reducing HIV risk on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to look at the situation in central New York with HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, and AIDS, with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the assistant professor of infectious disease at Upstate Medical University, where she's medical director of immune health services. She's also the medical director of Onondaga County's STD Center. Welcome, Dr. Asiago Reddy. Thank you. So uh, let's talk first about Onondaga County's STD Center. Tell us what services are offered there.
2: Yeah, so this is really an outstanding service that's offered to our community, Um, and what we do is we have walk-in clinics, um, which are available at at least either morning or afternoon, every day of the week except Wednesday, every weekday except Wednesday, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, Um, and we see people in a very private environment where um, we are actually at this point not collecting insurance information um, and we offer the opportunity for people who oftentimes may not have access to other health services or may not feel comfortable accessing other services to come in and talk about their sexual health um, When we see people, we will do screening for people who are concerned, maybe because they've had a uh, partner that is new or maybe because they're planning to have a new partner or also if they have symptoms of any kind of sexually transmitted infection. Um, The services that we offer are screening for gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, trichomonas, which is a parasite infection. Um, We also offer screening for HIV and syphilis. Um, We do viral cultures for anyone who looks like they have a herpes infection, though we do not do blood tests for herpes.
0: Okay. Um, And this is located in the basement of the Civic Center um, in Syracuse. We'll have a link actually to the website on our healthlinkonair.org website, um, where we'll have some more information on the times and and a phone number to call. Um, But basically, anyone can stop in for care.
2: Exactly. Anyone can stop in for care, Um, and very importantly, in addition to the services I mentioned, we also offer pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. So when we see people, we um, really have wraparound care. In many cases, um, we can actually diagnose and treat a sexually transmitted infection right there in the in the office and so um, people don't have to go from one place to another to go to a lab um, to go to a treatment center to go to a pharmacy etc of course that may not be the case for hundred percent of the infections that we see but in most of the cases um, we can offer diagnosis and treatment right there Um, and then as i said importantly we're also offering um, something called pre-exposure prophylaxis for hiv or prep
0: The pre-exposure prophylaxis you mentioned, PrEP, is also available at Upstate Immune Health Services um, at 315-464-5533, as well as the Adolescent Young Adult Specialized Care Center at 315-571-0013. So there's a lot of um, places in the community to access PrEP. So what is the situation with HIV
2: in Syracuse and Central New York? Um, How are the numbers, and and what is it like? Yeah, so first I'll talk about um, HIV in New York State in general. Um, HIV was one of uh, the more common and concerning infections um, in New York state that we were dealing with at the beginning of the epidemic. Um, and New York state was one of the highest prevalent states for HIV in the whole country, um, particularly when the HIV epidemic was first recognized. Um, and then throughout the early 90s when there was a lot of transmission, especially in New York City. Um, this really had a huge impact on New York State's health. And yet at the same time, New York State has taken one of the most, if not, I would argue, the most proactive approaches to HIV identification, care, and treatment of any state in the country. Um, so I'm actually very proud to be a New Yorker right now on the HIV front uh, because I think we're re- leading, um, I would say nationally and in ways even internationally, in our approach to trying to um, really make a change with this epidemic. Um, and so what are,
0: what are the things that are being done to make a change?
2: So um, Governor Cuomo two years ago launched uh, an initiative called Ending the Epidemic, And the goal there was to bring the cases of new infections of HIV down to less than 750 in New York State um, per year. And really, once we achieved that goal, the thought is that HIV HIV becomes rare enough that it becomes more and more difficult to contract and ultimately would lead to totally ending the epidemic in New York State. So there were three pillars to that goal. Um, The first one is to increase HIV testing. And New York State was the first in the country to enact laws to try and improve HIV testing. So saying that people who are going to see a primary care provider are being admitted to the hospital or are being seen in the emergency room should absolutely be offered HIV test, and that everyone, everyone, everyone should have at least one HIV test in their lifetime. Um, so that's number one, is increasing HIV testing. Um, number two is for those who are found to be HIV positive, we need to really offer them realistic, accessible services to treat their infection. Um, And one of the most important reasons for that is that by treating HIV infection, not only are we restoring the health of that individual, so we have wonderful medications that are available now that suppress the virus, um, get people's health back in line, and really have very few side effects. Um, But when people are on those medications, they also cannot transmit HIV to other people. And so that's revolutionized our whole approach to HIV, because if we can find people who have HIV didn't realize they had it, get them on treatment, we're keeping them healthy, and we're keeping our communities healthy. Um, So that's really number two, is offering services, making sure um, that we are offering care to people who are found to have HIV. And then number three in the governor's plan to end the epidemic in New York State by 2020 is pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, or PrEP. So PrEP is, uh, right now, consists of a daily pill to prevent HIV infection among people who are at high risk for HIV. So this is someone
0: Um, who um, doesn't have the disease yet, but is is at risk for it. Exactly. But it's not a vaccine.
2: Correct. It's not a vaccine. It's actually a, medic- a combination of medications. So right now, the medication that is available and, and approved by the FDA for PrEP is called Truvada. And Truvada consists of two different medications that initially were used to treat HIV. Okay. We realized over the course of many years, actually starting with trying to prevent HIV, um, from pregnant women to their infants. If we treat women during pregnancy and we treat infants when they're born, um, we can prevent HIV in those infants. And so we said, hmm, maybe we can actually have the same concept apply to other people who are at risk for HIV um, and treat them before they get infected. Um, So the other type of situation that led us to recognize that PrEP might work is something called PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So Babies who've been exposed, that's a form of PEP or post-exposure prophylaxis. So they've been exposed to HIV. Now we're treating them to make sure they don't get it. In addition, anyone who's had a needle stick or an, an unexpected sexual exposure. Um, and so later, maybe someone had sex and found out that their partner had HIV or they had sexual contact with somebody they don't, whose HIV status they don't know and they're concerned about that. Um, if treated within 72 hours after that exposure, we can prevent HIV by giving medications. Wow. Okay. So we realized this over the course of, uh, of a number of years that we have now completely eliminated occupational or needle stick um, HIV infections by treating people when that happens. And so we said, let's try to do this beforehand. It's even better if the medication is on board, and somebody is at risk, then when that person is exposed, they don't need to be worried and and trying to come into the emergency room and access medications, they're already on medication. And that medication is highly, highly effective at preventing HIV.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy about HIV infections. Um, so, who's most at risk for HIV? Who are the what's the population that you're targeting for
2: PrEP? Great question. The first thing I always want to mention um, with HIV, because I think a lot of people still have a lot of different assumptions about it, um, is that anyone who's had unprotected sex is at risk for HIV. Um, And so it is really important for us all to keep that in mind and to be aware of our sexual health and aware of the resources that we have um, to take care of our sexual health, which include going in for testing um, at a regular basis, going in for testing when we have new partners, and um, really accessing um, condoms, which are available in multiple different locations for free, including at the STD Center. Um, And so that, I think, is kind of the most important thing to keep in mind is that anyone who's had sex, we are, we are all at risk for HIV. Um, yes, there are certain populations who have a higher risk. And um, a lot of this has to do with uh, the fact that once an infection gets to what we call endemic, so it's common in a certain community, that community is more likely to be exposed whenever they have sex. So in the United States, some of the more common communities where HIV is more prevalent are uh, among men who have sex with men, so gay men, bisexual men, um, or other men who have sex with men. And HIV has been more common in that community since the beginning of the epidemic in the United States, starting in the early 80s. And that has continued to be the case today. So certainly um, gay men or other men who have sex with men are one of the groups of folks that we really hope to reach out to um, and get on PrEP. And yet at the same time, um, heterosexual men and women um, who have unprotected sex also are at risk for HIV. And many times that message has not gotten through to them. So the they still have a thought in their minds. And, and some of this has been promoted as well through um, advertising and what people see on the internet, um, that it's only gay men who get HIV. And that absolutely is not the case. Um, and so really, uh, heterosexual individuals, especially people who have partners that they don't know, people who have um, more partners, so can I give you a number? No. Um, and that changes from community to community. But if, if you have more partners that are unprotected, the higher the risk that goes up of, risk. A, of HIV. Um, and in addition, having sexually transmitted infections of other types. So if you have gonorrhea, if you have chlamydia, if you have syphilis, if you have uh, herpes, that inflammation in the genital area can increase the risk of acquiring HIV when you're exposed to it. And so having other sexually transmitted infections probably suggest that maybe um, your sexual partners might be higher risk and that you also might be higher risk, um, again, because of both the inflammation and because of who your partners are.
0: What do you say to someone who's newly diagnosed with HIV these days? What, what's the outlook for someone who's newly diagnosed?
2: Uh, the outlook is, is really very, very uh, optimistic and promising and hopeful. Um, people living with HIV are healthy. Um, they have long lives. Um, they really are, at this point, as long as they can access medications and take those medications, I say to many of my patients living with HIV that um, this is the, the biggest problem associated with your HIV right now is just re- making sure that you refill your medications. Um, and as long as you refill your medications, you are absolutely healthy. Um, so it, it, it's challenging sometimes to be tied down to that prescription. And that's one of the reasons why um, we really want people to remember and think about HIV prevention. Um, it's challenging for many of our, our, our patients living with HIV to feel that there still is a stigma associated with HIV. And uh, I, I think if we can get rid of that stigma, we will go a million miles to getting rid of the infection because more people will feel comfortable text- testing, will feel comfortable accessing PrEP, um, but for the time being, that that still is a challenge for a lot of people, um, is that they feel that others may view them a certain way on the basis of having HIV, which um, which makes it difficult.
0: Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy is the medical director for Onondaga County's STD Center, as well as the medical director of Upstate Medical University's Immune Health Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and radio show. Coming up next, treatments for head and neck cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. My guest today is an ear, nose, and throat specialist from Upstate, Dr. Jesse Ryan, and he's going to talk about head and neck cancers. Thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having me, pleasure to be here.
0: So to begin with, when we say head and neck cancers, what does that encompass?
3: So head and neck cancer uh, for us will include anything in the mouth, the tongue, uh, the back of the throat, uh, the voice box, also included would be thyroid cancer, salivary gland cancers, and even some aggressive uh, skin cancers.
0: Oh, okay. In the head and neck area?
3: Correct. On the face, typically, for skin cancers.
0: So, which are the most common that you see?
3: The most common that we'll see are cancers coming from the lining of the throat. So, these are called squamous cell carcinomas, and that refers to the lining both of the skin and on the inside of the mouth, uh, on the tongue the back of the tongue, the side walls of the throat in the areas people um, would call the tonsils uh, Mm. on the side, and then the voice box related cancers. These are almost always squamous cell carcinomas.
0: Okay. Um, Do you know how many people are affected in general by head and neck cancers?
3: Uh, Some numbers would estimate about 50,000 people a year are diagnosed with either what are called oral or oropharyngeal cancers, so that's the mouth or uh, the back of the throat. And then, for instance, another 60,000 people a year have thyroid cancer diagnosed. The other cancer sites are going to be lower numbers, relatively more rare.
0: Okay. Well, what is, uh, in your practice, um, typically how many patients do you see?
3: The Upstate Cancer Center, uh, here we treat uh, several hundred patients a year with with head and neck cancer.
0: Okay. So the risk factors for head and neck cancers traditionally have been things like smoking and alcohol consumption. Is that still the case?
3: Things are changing in the world of uh, cancer in the mouth and throat. So while smoking and alcohol are still major factors for voice box related cancers, um, as they are for things like lung cancer, uh, in the mouth and sides of the throat, so the back of the tongue and tonsils, cancer related to a virus called the human papilloma virus, uh, the same virus that causes cervical cancer in women, is now the leading cause of cancer in those sites.
0: The leading cause, wow.
3: It is, and in fact, uh, I believe the numbers have shown that the number of oral and back of the tongue cancers caused by this virus are now higher than the number of cervical cancers in the country.
0: Wow. And this is for men and women?
3: This affects men and women. Uh, the virus is felt to be nearly ubiquitous. So almost everybody has been exposed to one form or another of the virus in their lifetime. And there are certain uh, forms of the virus that have a higher tendency to, to uh, develop into a cancer over time. This is a long-time exposure. You may have been exposed to the virus uh, 20 or 30 years ago. You would never know it. And uh, 20 or 30 years later, you may develop a cancer. So these are are patients who are healthier, don't have um, smoking habits, are not heavy drinkers. And uh, in that way, often they're not thinking of themselves as at risk for cancer.
0: And fairly young,
3: too. Younger patients as well, exactly.
0: Is this um, what the actor Michael Douglas had This a is the, back?
3: a similar type of cancer. I'm not sure if his was the viral-related one or not.
0: Okay. All right. But I remember um, stories about that, and he had, the implication was that he had contracted it through oral sex.
3: Yeah, and, so the uh, initially a lot of thoughts were related to um, number of sexual partners or high-risk activities being uh a high risk for developing this type of cancer i think um in the head and neck cancer world now we we tend to focus more on the idea that almost everybody has got some sort of exposure you shouldn't think of it like uh, someone's got some unusual um, deviant practice and that's why they're at high risk for this Uh, it doesn't have to be through Um, sexual contact it can be you know you can get it from your sister you can get it you know from Mm -hmm. your mother you can get it from a friend it's not felt to be transmitted only um, in that way
0: so um, this is the virus that they have the vaccination for now for the teenagers or preteens.
3: Right. So there is some hope that over the course of the coming decades that we'd see a decline in this type of cancer as the vaccine is um, uh, comes to full use and as those children you know then grow up into adulthood.
0: Well, in the meantime, um, what are the symptoms that someone should be on the lookout for?
3: In terms of uh, head, neck, and mouth cancers, any sore inside the mouth or on the lips that doesn't go away within a couple weeks needs the attention of your doctor. Um, do, they, people, do they
0: go away and come back or?
3: So many people will get a canker sore or have a cold sore that may last for a week um, or they bite their tongue and it, it's gonna heal within a week or two. Okay. If a sore stays there and doesn't go away, or a growth stays anywhere inside the mouth and doesn't go away, then that's the type of thing we worry about. Cancer doesn't go away and come back in the same spot or in a different spot. Um, it tends to just stay there and get worse, but it doesn't have to uh, grow quickly necessarily. Um, so anything in the, in the mouth longer than a few weeks deserves attention. Um, other things that uh, patients should be aware of would be Similarly, a sore throat that doesn't go away, a change in the voice that doesn't go away. Everyone's allowed to have a cold and be hoarse for a few days, but if it stays for a couple weeks, then that's something that needs attention. There might be attention. something
0: else going on. Yeah,
3: same for okay. a, a lump in the neck. That's a common way for uh, patients to notice a cancer would be an adult with a new lump in the neck. Often it doesn't hurt. Um, if that's not associated with, with an illness, If you're sick and your glands are enlarged, that's fine. But if if that stays, um, then again, that needs attention because that's not normal. And uh, these cancers have a tendency to spread to the neck early. So they may be very small in the back of the tongue or in the tonsil and not have any symptoms in the mouth but have showed up in the neck. And that's how they're often diagnosed. Um, How how big
0: would the lump in the neck be?
3: Well, it could be anywhere from a a marble size to a lemon, depending on on the patient. So it
0: would be noticeable, probably?
3: They tend to be noticeable in many patients, and that's often the first uh, way it's diagnosed. The good news is that these types of cancers uh, respond better to treatment than some of the traditional cancers. Mm. And in fact, coming next year, there's going to be a new staging system For head and neck cancer, specifically addressing this viral-related cancers uh, and refiguring the staging of the cancers based on um, essentially completely different factors than have traditionally been done because these cancers behave in ways that uh, that are different from the smoking and drinking-related cancers of 30 and 40 years ago.
0: Oh, interesting. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jesse Ryan, an otolaryngologist at Upstate. Um, so, if you have these symptoms, how do you go about diagnosing that it's a head and neck cancer?
3: So, a, a traditional pathway will be uh, someone will either see their dentist or see their primary care uh, for a spot that they're worried about. And uh, the primary care will often refer to a ear nose and throat specialist for an additional exam.
0: And, and dentists also can refer.
3: The dentists are, yes, they can refer, and they've been increasingly doing more uh, mouth exams in the office. You may notice that your dentist is, you know, pulling at your tongue and looking around more than they did 10 years ago. And um, I think they've made a concerted effort to try to help diagnose these cancers. and, and with good success, we get a number of referrals directly from uh, our dental colleagues. Um, I examine the office in your nose and throat office. Um, We'll include a a good look all around the the mouth and then often using a flexible camera through the nose to look down toward the voice box.
0: Can you tell by looking if it's a cancer?
3: Sometimes you can tell by the appearance that it's almost certainly going to be a cancer. Um, A cancer is always diagnosed under the microscope by the pathologist though so that's either a biopsy using a needle for a lump in the neck or a biopsy taking a very small piece of uh, growth on the tongue or the back of the tongue and then sending it to the lab and letting the pathologist look at it under the microscope sometimes the biopsies can be done in the office sometimes we need to go to the operating room if the location of concern is too deep um, so that the gag reflexes too much to do in the office or for patient comfort.
0: Okay. All right. So once you have the diagnosis and then um, it it gets staged so that you know how how advanced?
3: Right. So the, the biopsy helps tell us a lot. Often there are scans that are done like CT scans, sometimes an MRI scan. There are fancier scans called PET scans that look at activity of cells in the body. It's its uh, labeled sugar. All of our cells use sugar as energy so the scan takes advantage of that. Um, cancer cells are working harder than other cells so they will sh- use more sugar and show up brighter on these scans. Other things show up brighter too. If you sprain your ankle, if you have an infection, those cells are working more too. So just because it's bright doesn't mean it's cancer but in the context of a known cancer and a known biopsy, then it's important information. Um, so that that rolls into the staging of a cancer, and then uh, there are three main treatment options for any any type of cancer. Generally, we're talking about surgery, uh, radiation therapy, or chemotherapy.
0: In in, the, in that order? No,
3: or not, necessarily not necessarily in that? that order. Just the three uh, buckets of treatment okay. for head and neck cancers either surgery or radiation therapy is typically the primary treatment would be considered the, the uh, first line treatment with chemotherapy reserved to either increase the effectiveness of radiation therapy. So a common treatment for a back of the tongue cancer that's spread to lymph nodes in the neck may be a combination of radiation therapy or chemo uh, and chemotherapy. Or if there's any signs that the cancer is acting aggressively or is uh, has a high risk of spreading to other parts in the body, then chemotherapy is the only uh, systemic type treatment. So that's going to circulate throughout the body and potentially get those cancer cells that are trying to spread somewhere else.
0: So it really is going to depend on the individual patient what becomes recommended for.
3: That's true. So the are at Upstate, our uh, cancer specialists meet on a weekly basis at what we call a Tumor Conference or a Head and Neck Multidisciplinary Conference, and we'll discuss each of the new cancer diagnoses, uh, each patient individually, and try to give what is Upstate's recommendation for how to proceed uh, with cancer treatment. Neat, neat.
0: Well, um, tell me a little bit about some of the recent advances for surgery.
3: So there's been some exciting changes in uh, surgery over the last number of years, Um, One is a robotic technology that's uh, been used in many fields of surgery. Some patients may be aware that their um, prostate surgery or uh, other general surgery is using the robot to less invasively do major surgery uh, with great results. In the head and neck, um, some tumors are able to be removed using the robot from the back of the tongue, for instance, that 30 years ago, to remove them would have required a much more aggressive surgery uh, in order to even get at the growth in the back of the tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a matter of having the right tools to fit in through a small space. So there is good evidence that some patients can avoid radiation therapy or avoid chemotherapy and and just have surgery primarily for these tumors uh, at the back of the tongue, for instance, or the tonsil that over the last ten or twenty years, had mostly been treated by radiation and chemotherapy.
0: Okay.
3: Uh, there's some other exciting changes in the world of reconstructive surgery. So, um, in addition to doing cancer surgery, uh, for some patients, I will do the reconstructive surgery that involves at the
0: same time or is it would that be a done
3: separate? At, it'd be done at the same setting. So some some patients uh, require do require a, a fairly large surgery to remove a cancer. So, for instance, if you have a cancer on the tongue that that involves a significant portion of the tongue, you remove the cancer and then you've got to fill the hole in there and fix it. So there are a variety of ways we we do that but one of them is by transferring tissue from another part of the body. It's like a transplant within your own body. So you don't have to worry about rejection of the transplant Um, but the blood vessels are, are sewn together under the microscope using Um, thread that's smaller than a human hair and uh, that tissue is then reconstructed to help reform a tongue or reform a jaw. Uh, There is additional computer technology that we're using in the uh, jaw reconstruction now so we're able to take a CT scan from the patient and before doing the surgery we'll be able to meet with a company on the computer uh, using a teleconference and do the surgery ahead of time on the computer and show them where we wanna cut the bone and how we wanna reconstruct the jaw. And then the company will produce custom fitted guides both to help uh, cut the jaw and to reconstruct the jaw.
0: Interesting. um,
3: And even create a custom titanium plate that's milled just for that patient in Germany and then shipped over here. and so it's been pretty exciting, and we've been able to get uh, lower times of surgery as a result and get improved results, I think, in terms of the well, quality. Well, it all
0: sounds very futuristic and very interesting. Uh, my guest has been Upstate otolaryngologist Dr. Jesse Ryan. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink Air podcast and talk show. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: People in healthcare work long hours, and sometimes they may wonder if they really make a difference in patients' lives. Pediatrician Peter Cronkite can answer this question both personally and professionally. In his brief but elegant essay, Meaningful Use, he takes on the often frustrating metrics that healthcare systems now force all practitioners to use, while showing us he remembers from his own past just how important and meaningful old fashioned notions of listening and caring for a patient are. Here is Meaningful Use Diary Entry, January 16, 2016. I run from a morning meeting about the finances of meaningful use and enter the cramped exam room where ZM waits with her three children, two in diapers and one in a video game. She presents as an ER follow-up for back pain. The pain is no better. Taught that it is best to reveal all patient concerns early, I repeatedly inquire, and anything else? She lists dizzy, tired headache from their noise. I yell at them. It makes me cry. I size them up. The toddler, a girl, points a shaking index finger at me and scowls. The oldest, a boy age four, is spread across the footrest of my exam table, ignoring me while thumbing at the beeping screen. The infant, new to our world four months ago, stretches across mom's lap limbs spread in apparent rigor mortis from his snowsuit. I wonder if his fat cheeks are natural or mobilized facial edema from compressed extremities. I take him, while mom trades places with video boy. The girl is soon standing on the chair's armrest, pulling otoscope speculums from the wall. A quick fix will not be the care plan for the start of my Friday schedule but the scene flashes me back to another case. After being corralled in a packed waiting room, N.C. and three of her six boys are escorted into an exam room. The urgent visit for the boys in diapers was prompted by a referral from N.C.'s three sisters. N.C. always consulted my aunts before calling the doctor. As the boys explore every cupboard in the tiny exam room, the thin walls provide a soundtrack of the doctor's journey to their door. He finally enters, calmly greets N.C. while picking up the boy, pushing his rolling stool, and sits down. As he listens repeatedly to N.C. over the years, the boys grow up receiving care that fosters dignity and learn the value of a positive role model. I play my role I measure mom's BP standing while the snowsuit pins her infant safely from rolling off the exam table. Mom's suffering is acknowledged. I offer empathetic reassurance while retrieving the escaping toddler from the hallway. The child points a shaking finger at me and scowls. I offer my hand and she holds on. Together we walk. Before closing the charted encounter that evening, the red vital alerts me to always address an abnormal BMI. I click, click, click to 36.2, click, click to the option of lifestyle education regarding diet, and click, click, click to save and close. Meaningful use is difficult to measure, but I know it because I have experienced it repeatedly.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll hear how bones are built with stem cells and a 3D printer, and we'll learn about falls, the leading cause of injury among New York adults age 65 and older. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.